Hey guys, what's up? It's Greg. Here's another episode of Flick City. This time out, I have two interviews with filmmakers who have who de- debuted their new their film this weekend. Okay, first up is Levon Kit, and he's a Vietnamese filmmaker. And biasly, I'm supporting him because he is a UCLA Bruin graduate. And yeah, I'm class of '93. I'm an old man. He's much younger than me, but he's the filmmaker behind the movie The Requin. And I, I don't even know if I'm saying the Requin cry, correctly. It's the Requin. The Requin. It's headlined by Alicia Silverstone, Alicia Silverstone, and James Tupper. They star in this movie, shark film, couple vacationing in Vietnam, and they are, well, they are basically inundated, terrorized by a school of very hungry sharks. Now, the Requin doesn't have. It's a low-budget film, but that's not a pejorative. What's the interesting about this movie is you get to see how. Levon Kitt actually uses his ingenuity, his budget to actually make a very interesting Shark Tale headline again by Alicia Silverstone. Now, it's really, really cool because it was great to hear all the nuts and bolts about filmmaking that Levon Kitt had because I've always been one of my regrets or just one of the pipe dreams I had was when I was at UCLA, I wanted to actually major in film, but I never did. I actually ended up as a film critic and film columnist for the UCLA Daily Bruin, my my major was poli sci back in the day. I don't even know if they still call it that here in UCLA, but back in the day, I I graduated with a degree in political science. And poli sci back in the day was how many times can I say back in the day? But look, poli sci around 1933. 1993, around 1993 when I graduated was considered, quote unquote, the cop-out major. So a lot of my studies at UCLA was ultimately in entertainment journalism, film reporting, movie reviewing because of the two to three years I spent at the UCLA Daily Bruin interviewing people. It started in 91. So when I start off my question with the Requin filmmaker, I asked him about his time at UCLA film school and if that was actually beneficial for him as a filmmaker, okay? And then we just start talking about the movie, about working with Elise Silverstone and what James Tupper brought to the table, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he talks about his also his love for such filmmakers as James Cameron, as well as the movie Aliens and how that shaped his life as a youth and how that influenced him. Secondly, we have Christopher Bow, B-O-E. I think it's, it's his name, his last name is Bowie or Bowie, Bow. B-O-E, he's a Danish filmmaker, and his new film is called A Taste of Hunger. By the way, A Taste of Hunger and The Requiem are both available right now on Digital On Demand. I will have the Amazon links or the links whatsoever on the episode show notes to give you guys a little bit more information on how to actually watch these movies if you're not actually watching them currently on the theater. Okay, so a lot of you will be watching this via your personal home entertainment system or like me, maybe, who knows, like your Chromebook or your iPad. I know it's sacrilegious on my part, but Christopher Bowe, He's a Danish filmmaker, and during the interview, he talked about his whole mise-en-scene, his own approach to this movie, which is centers, again, it's another married couple. This time, they're not, it's not like the Requin where they're they're terrorized by sharks. They are under the gun, and they are focused on getting a Michelin star for their restaurant. Nikolai Koster-Waldau, aka the Kingslayer from Game of Thrones, he's... He plays the dude who's, he's the chef and he's the mastermind behind everything pretty much. And, and he is really, he really wants that Michelin star. And at times he's given up his family in the process and he sacrificed probably a lot of personal time with his family and his wife and attention to, you know, his daughter and, and his wife to get that 
that goal. And his wife, though, though she does understand there's a lot of friction regarding that, and that plays itself out in a taste of hunger. And a taste of hunger really, it centers, it has some, its share of flashbacks, but it centers on a maybe a 12 hour period where they believe a person is actually went into their restaurant and who was going to grade them on a Michelin star. And he was supposedly just not happy with the meal and he left. And what happens is it's how they try to track him down through the event of a night and to see if he will come back to their restaurant to actually have a decent meal and maybe give them a Michelin star. So that my second interview again is with Christopher Bowie or Bo for A Taste of Hunger. So The Requiem and A Taste of Hunger are your two interviews for this episode. Now, since a lot of times, you know, we started off with me and Anderson maybe five, six years ago, where we'd review movies every week, a lot of our stuff would be spotlighting indie film. And that's a lot of the stuff that I do now with with my buddies, Bruce Perky and Eric Holmes over at Find Your Film. Anderson has obviously the After Disaster, the Film Vault, and he, we meet together once a, once a month to actually tape one episode of Cinematics and also our bonus Patreon episode as well. So hopefully, I wanted to, for this year, for Cinematics and our Patreon world, the whole Cinematics thing, I wanted to actually bring a lot more of my interviews to the forefront this year. So what you'll be getting on this podcast feed is just basically my updated interviews with filmmakers and actors. Hopefully you find them value added. If our Patreon, by the way, is a $5 a month catch-all fee and some of the perks along with our bonus episode that Anderson and I talk about every month, you will actually get first access to first access to these interviews that I conduct via video form. And number two, and I've, I haven't been really great at this, but I'm going to be a lot more organized. Patreon members can actually ask questions, submit questions for the actors and filmmakers I'm about to interview. And hopefully some of these questions will be actually used in the interview that I have with these respective artists. So if you're actually a wannabe interviewer or just interested in what people have to say in general, if you are a Patreon subscriber to Cinematics, you'll just have to email me some questions so uh, for some actors or filmmakers that I'm about to interview, and I'll make sure to actually post it on the Patreon feed when I'm going to interview these people. I'm going to, I'm going to actually this week, the worst person in the world, the male lead in this movie, I, I don't know his full name, his first name is Anders. I'm going to interview him tomorrow and I'll put that up on the, on the feed as well on the podcast feed, but I'm going to interview him tomorrow. And as well, I'm going to interview the filmmaker behind this Charlie Hunnam and Mel Gibson film called Last looks okay and our patreon subscribers i actually put it put the post out today and they can actually come and actually come and um and submit their questions to my email etc etc so that's one of the just different perks you'll get from the patreon feed i'm trying to open up the whole movie world a little bit more up with our cinematics thing and one of the things that actually inspired me with this was anderson and i and i actually finally moved to a, a a real not a real, well, to a to a different podcasting platform called Buzzsprout, and so far it's so good, and the the stats are really good, and and the interface is interesting. So I don't know, I'm just really interested in posting up a lot more content on the cinematics and via Buzzsprout, and I'm hoping if if Anderson finds some time that we'll get to meet more than once a month this this year, and maybe shoot the proverbial, you know what, it's a family show, but we can shoot the you know what, and actually review more movies together, you know, in, instead of talking about movies, maybe there'll be time when Anderson and I can, again, go back and forth and argue and talk about various 
movies and I, I just like how it used to be back in the day. But now what's cool is things have changed a little bit now with Bruce and Eric. They're on board for that one episode per month. And I love those guys. And I'm going to give you guys a lot more interviews as well from what I, from my quote unquote day job. Actually, my day job for years was a nanny to my five-year-old niece, Claire, but that's another story. Also forgot to mention Christopher Bowie, Bo, I don't know, I don't know, from A Taste of Hunger. He also mentions towards the end, his love for filmmakers such as Carl Dreyer. Carl Dreyer directed the very popular film, Joan d'Arc, no, Joan d'Arc, Joan of Arc, in in France or in French, I think it's called or it's Jean Jean d'Arc, right? The Passion of Joan of Arc. That's the filmmaker called Dreyer. He directed The Passion of Joan of Arc, and he also directed this movie called Vampire. And he's he's a very celebrated filmmaker. You can actually, I still think you can actually catch most of his work on the Criterion Channel. And yeah, towards the end of the interview, A Taste of Hunger filmmaker Christopher Bow talks about his love for Dreyer and filmmaker Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder, as you know, or maybe you don't know, is the filmmaker behind such films as One, Two, Three, Some Like It Hot, and most importantly, in my opinion, Sunset Boulevard. Great, great film. So these are, that's it. And also, lastly, if you have any questions regarding cinematics, email Anderson Cowan at anderson at andersoncowan.com or email me at editor at deepestdream.com. So um, that's enough for me just blabbing. Here are my interviews with the Re- Requiem filmmaker Lee Van Kitt and also a Taste of Hunger filmmaker Christopher Bow. Take, take care, guys, and thanks again for supporting me on me and Anderson on Cinematics. You got, you guys, okay, recording in the progress. So you guys, you can, you can take we're a Bruins. You know, we, we just found out that we're Bruins, and so it just took off. So that <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. Yes, we are. I've always, so I graduated class of 93, poli sci. And one of the things mm. I look back on is I my favorite yes. class was was a film class. And mm. I'm just over at Melnitz. And just wondering for you, who, who you were actually steeped in the program, how did it help you and shape you okay. as a filmmaker you are today? Uh, you know, at, at the beginning, I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have. Uh, I think it's, it's that kind of age that you're in that you, you think that you've gotten to film school could, because the UCLA film school was, was quite unique and it was, it was quite difficult to get into. And not because it's like, I mean, it's a good school, but it's not because it's like so great or, or so expensive or anything like that. Uh, it's because it's the classroom is so small. And so, I, I thought, you know, uh, getting in there would just, you know, just make me immediately like this uh, tour. But it, but it's it's different because the UCLA program is more of the uh, tour experience. Like it's it's your film and it's your vision and all that versus what you need to know how to navigate the business and uh, which USC I believe is is. Uh, somewhat better for i've come to terms with that because when i came out uh from school and around early 2000 i i was kind of lost and i didn't know how to navigate the business you know and how to get an agent and how to be out there and how to put out my uh, story and vision but the, the things that i've learned were very strong basis things like analog things like how to record sound and how to shoot and how to navigate, uh, you know, the, the visual language. So that helped. But the thing that I was missing a lot was, was the actual story telling for, a, for an audience, right? I had to do everything myself, basically. And that's what UCLA does for you is that you, you literally have to do every position. 
uh, and you get to be able to immerse in that. And so that that was very helpful, and that I, uh, that I'm very grateful for. You know, speaking of being grateful and helpful, how important was it to have someone like actors like Silverstone and Tupper just anchor your narrative? Because the movie doesn't work unless you have a, an emotional connection to this couple. Were they both no-brainers for you as far as the casting and the collaboration effort on your part? Alicia was... Um... By the way, she likes to be called Alicia, and I found that out. The, and I was kind of, are you sure? She's like, no, it's Alicia. So I have to get it right from now on. It's Alicia. Uh, she was a, a, a gift to be working on this one because um, she has her own story to tell um, and her own personal touch to, uh, to the character. And I, I was very uh, lucky for that because she was not the obvious person that I thought that could pull this off, obviously. But when she showed a lot of interest and when I talked with her, uh, there was a, there was this kind of emotional connection that she really wanted to uh, explore in this character. And so I, I immediately uh, had a lot of confidence in that um, because we, we really didn't talk anything about the, you know, the whole, the whole action of the movie or the scares or any, any of that kind of genre stuff but I, I found myself constantly talking to her about character and her emotions and and how she's going to pull off like real in-depth acting stuff you know and uh that was that's a joy to do and james just came in and really supported all that because he's he's more of a a minimalist actor and as far as the way that he approached this and that that helped a lot and uh, that kind of offset the balance you know, in, in layman's terms, what's the, I don't know what the budget was for this movie, but the, one of the cool things I loved about this one, when they're in the middle of the ocean, you really feel like they're in the middle of the ocean. Is there a trick mm-hmm. to do that with with not having a $100 million budget for you? Just what was the, what was the, what was the thing of opening up the world with a, a you know, a limited budget as, as opposed to a $100 million budget? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just, I mean, these days the tools to do that is, is a lot easier. Uh, and, and it's just only recently, I I think the the reef, um, did a similar movie where they're lost in the middle of the ocean. And, um, obviously you would, you would shoot in one direction to, to feel the openness of the ocean. And when you're actually turning the camera around, you're, you're actually not physically turning the camera around. You're just kind of letting them stay there but then they're acting as if the turn, the camera's turned around. So it's, it's called flipping the set. So that's one of the things that we did uh, to show, to, to kind of in editing, to show that it's, it's a wide open ocean. And obviously we couldn't shoot in an open ocean because of safety. And um, there's just a lot of problems when you shoot in nature and you don't have a lot of control over weather and uh, swells or anything like that. And so, um, so we, we shot in a very controlled environment, but the, yeah, the, the uh, visual effects uh, these days are just so so powerful and so easy uh, in terms of uh, budget. To I don't think it costs much to to make that happen. And speaking of doubling, what about doubling for for Vietnam? As far as a physical production, was it hard for you, or a lot easier than you think? Because of now with these days, with a good production designer and just a good visual sense, mm-hmm. it's easier to double one city A for city B. It, surprisingly, it was for me because the art uh, department uh, production designer Maxwell he he built that boat uh, from scratch. I mean, he had he's he's never even been to Vietnam. I think he's only been into Southeast Asia, but he built that bamboo boat, and it was awesome. It was amazing, and and he built that villa, and uh, we we obviously used some 
real footage from Vietnam so that we can you know put it in the editing. But uh, the story didn't really take place entirely in Vietnam, right? Because uh, pretty much after about 15 minutes or so, they're, they're kind of out there in the ocean. And so we were able to get enough just to show that they, they, they came to Vietnam in this kind of Instagram-like vacation and what everybody sees that it's, it's the thing to do. And um, that was enough for me, in, in my opinion, because I, w- I wasn't going to go place them in the middle of the city or anything like that. And that wasn't the interest of the film. Okay. When you're writing this movie, okay, so I guess on a superficial level, everyone's going to say a very fun shark film, but you, when you're writing it, you're actually looking at it from the point of view of a human being trying to overcome their, their trauma and their ongoing trauma. Can you just talk about how that theme, why that theme, you were passionate about that theme as far as creating the story? Yeah, I wanted to do a story that had the you know, the quietness of nature and the kind of like the calmness, but then also the violence of it, and and that it just goes on uh, very naturally without you even being aware of it, and that that's a metaphor for what the couple's going through is the, this underbelly and this undertone of unsaid pain and grief that. Sometimes you even shout it out or, or even have a heated conversation. It's, it's, it's nothing. You know, there's, there's not really anything to do or, or gain from that. Um, and so that's kind of like the metaphor of nature in this film, too, is that it's, it's, um, even though they're lost, they're fearful of everything, it's, it's very beautiful and quiet. And that's why you see every now and then a few, a few shots of just beauty and, you know, the, the, the calmness of the ocean and the, the breeze and, and, and they are in a beautiful place, you know, there's sandbars and there's palm trees and, uh, but, uh, you know, she, she, uh, trips on uh coil, uh, coal, um, sorry, coral, and she gets attacked by a shark immediately. And so, uh, those, those things are always in contrast in, in, in this film that I uh, like to build. A lot of filmmakers have different favorite elements of filmmaking. Some filmmakers just like it, right? I remember talking to a filmmaker and he said that he just loved writing the script. And then after every mm-hmm. step along the way, even though it's a finished product and it should be a victory, every single pro- every single step is a compromise. Another filmmaker said, well, I like to actually be on the set with people and just collaborate mm-hmm. and just the human experience. And then another one says editing because you're actually, you're putting everything together. Mm-hmm. Just wondering for you, is there a favorite aspect to what you do? I like the prep work. I, I think that uh, that's really when the movie is made or getting made. Um, is, is in the prep work because because in prep you you're watching the movie in your head multiple times and you're you're able to make decisions that are critical obviously but then also very rewarding because you get this excitement of oh I can't wait to do this I can't wait to do that and that's in the, all in the prep and that's part of working with the actors in prep too because you you're really sitting down with them in a calm setting and Sometimes it's just us in a lobby or something like that, and we'll just talk. And it, it gets them excited about the shoot day. Um, to me, shooting days is really a mechanical thing. It's just automatic. It's just because you're so, so stressed within uh, you know, a 10-hour period. You, you just have to be automatic about it. You can't really, you, you can't even have a time to have coffee. I mean, obviously you can drink a lot of coffee, but it's not real coffee time, right? It's, it's like, uh, you got to get the shot and it's, it's hurry, hurry, hurry. And what are the decisions? And, and so prep time to me is, is always like the movie really. And that's when, you know, you're going to make a mistake and then you can correct it. 
you know what outfit they should be wearing and you know that that, that outfit is terrible on camera it's uh, because it's it looks cheap you know suddenly but in real life it looks great you know and but this somehow this 200,000 half a million dollar camera it looks terrible <laughs> so you know all of those unforeseen things come up in prep and that's that, but that's that's why this business is so fun because it's never the same it's never the exact thing that you can say that you know or anticipate after this movie I, i'm looking forward to going back to some of your other other films and actually watching them and you know get, getting my own take on your movies and you have a you seem to have a very cerebral approach to your craft and wondering for people who watch your work do you is there a through line that that puts your films together or is that being just too over analytical regarding your work you're saying each experience is different mm -hmm. is each movie just different and there's no way just to really lump the themes together in one big essay i guess i would say that i the, the films that you know having said that there's films that's prior to me i i tend to gravitate to to be precious about the character and 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 the and the message and, and the kind of like the journey of what that character is going to show you and it's going to and you're going to experience with that person and uh, i just heard this from elmer leonard who's, who's a great writer and influences so many filmmakers right and he says he doesn't care about story he just cares about the character and he doesn't plan out anything it's, he just starts talking with the characters meeting dialogue and he's just because he's great with dialogue and he just keeps writing it until a story comes up <laughs> that kind of thing and so it's kind of like that you know i i everything dictates that for me, me it, even the shots even the, t the tone and the timing of the shot the editing it, it really depends on the character uh, and for this film um it's a scene that alicia needs to stay there in bed and absorb everything that we've experienced with her from the last shot you know uh a director's decision is okay how long are you going to stay on that shot you know and and some directors would be like, oh, just cut it really quick or a producer would say that. But, you know, as a director, as a storyteller, you you got to make that very important decision. It's either you stay long on that shot so that people are feeling it with her or you succumb to a lot of people's fears about, you know, what the audience is going to feel. They're going to be, why is this shot so long and all that? And just cut it quick. But but I I've been successful in arguing a lot with either an audience or a producer through the needs of the character. Do you feel like sometimes that's an uphill battle? Because even as an editor myself and on, on audio, I just, I'm so OCD about even just a half second space I want to cut. And I, other, I also talk to other filmmakers and they, they just say, you know, it's a two hour film, but I, I could cut it down if I wanted to, to, to 80 minutes. I mean, mm -hmm. it, that's not, is that not, that's not part of your aesthetic, but do you ever, is it just an uphill battle for you? Because I think that's really cool because these composed shots, that letting a story breathe is so important in, in the success of a film. Uh, it, it, comes, uh, it comes to the Hitchcock's school of thinking is that your it's, it's, style is really no style, right? Meaning it's a, it's, if you watch Hitchcock's movies, he doesn't really edit for style. He, he edits or he constructs his film because of the character and what's going on and the, and the craft of the buildup and the scare. And so, you know, I heard this discussion with, with the Coen brothers too, is that really anybody could be, anybody can direct a movie. Right. And it's, it's not a really difficult skill. It's, you know, anybody can put together a film or a story or, you know, you see it all over in YouTube, but, but a director decides whether that one camera 
move stays there and stays there for five minutes and just hears three people talking. <laughs> now, not many people can decide that, <laughs> right? And you see in Jaws, actually, Jaws is a perfect example of what a director should do is that he'll, he'll stay on that one shot of just three men talking on a boat and they're just they, they're talking about the whole plot and everything but there's no cuts there's it's just three men standing on a boat and just talking about whether they're going to be uh what's their next move in, in this uh little small town and you know that that's what a director does he makes that very critical decision okay my final question to you is i from um, my podcast listeners i usually ask filmmakers and actors to name one of their all-time favorite movies and what is it about this specific film that still resonates with you today? Oh, that's a tough one because uh, I have so many. I, it's uh, it. Uh, I, I could tell you the you know I grew up with the great great movies. Uh, obviously, uh, in in the you know the the, the action movies of the eighties and in the nineties, and I. But I didn't really want to become a filmmaker until I saw films from the uh, the great seventies, those art houses films, and then the European films. And so I would say. Uh, when those when films like Clute came out, you know, Pacula's film and All the President's Men, that really intense movies uh, that that had to do with these, these clever, you know, filmmaking style. And then uh, I've watched a lot of Bergman when I was going in film school, and that really made me uh, the filmmaker that really wanted to tell story in a character driven way. And then there's there's films like I, I can't I, I can watch Aliens for you know, every, every weekend, if I, if I can, I remember the first movie I've ever seen in a theater was aliens um, uh, with my, you know, my parents took me to this drive-in theater that had aliens in there and I could, I'd never forgot it. So those are the film movies that really, um, you know, resounds for me in these days. You, you quickly mentioned aliens and do you, uh, do you get wistful for the days when art and commerce could really have a successful marriage, you know, with, with people like Cameron at the helm? Do you, do you miss those days? Because it's either really visual. Yeah. 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 What, why isn't that commonplace now? That marriage? It's either really interesting visionary filmmakers with a restricted budget as opposed to more commercially driven films with, uh, I guess, compromises with the studio. Is it just part and parcel of the evolution of the bit movie business or I, I don't know. I, I think the, the, um, and I think, I, I think the only person that really resonates this is, is Tarantino uh, in, in the contemporary times, because I think movies back then has a sense of rationale. Like it takes longer to do something, right? It, it's analog. It's, it, they, they shot on film and they, James Cameron would literally, uh, he was an art director and he would literally, do these miniatures himself and he knows all of that that world and so it it took a, a lot of meticulous decision making careful thought into those films and it wasn't an easy decision you know you were you were um either burning money and when, when you were rolling the camera you were literally burning money right but i think these days it's everything's so much easier and quicker I mean, you can edit you can erase you can you know they call it removing but I think here it's and in, and especially things are just thrown at us in in rapid speed, you know, with the screens and everybody's really watching movies on a phone. Uh, that I think that it's just more of like a speed rail now, you know, just getting the content and the shooting, uh, you know, just really quick. Not not to say that there's not great careful filmmaking being done, uh, like like back in the old days, but um, 
but yeah, it's just a different time and different thinking towards filmmaking. Okay, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank well, you for your questions. And one more thing, go Bruins. Oh, yes, go Bruins. <laughs> All right, thank you. And you look very young for a class of 93, actually. You look oh. like my age. You can't be the class of 93. Th- thank you. <laughs> and Camelia, can you call the uh, doctor? He needs uh, He needs eyeglasses, so... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys. Have a great <laughs> Have a great rest of the weekend. Take care. Okay. First off, you know what what they teach you as a storyteller or writer is for a narrative, one scene should have a forward momentum. You know, you go you go from point A to point B. But what I love about your film is the fact that every scene I wanted to actually stay in. You, there's a lot of world building within every scene you have in this narrative. Can you tell me how much how much work does that take? Because you're not following a planned formula, and that's what I really appreciated about your film. Obviously, there's an overall structure of how the different scenes fit together and how they push each other. You know, uh, we have basically two overall layers. We have the present day uh, and the struggle and the love that that our main character Maggie's put in that she has to sort of eventually have a, to choose between personal life or the professional life, and then the backstory. And the, and the sort of puzzle of what what came about for her to have to choose have this choice in her life. But the overall work on the script, just uh, I'm, I'm glad you feel that it, that it has these uh, uh, possibilities or whatever you call it. That it has this kind of uh, richness to it because I mean we wrote on the script for a long time, so we it's changed over time. It changed in the sense of what we wanted it to really in uh, this, the story we wanted to tell. The situation between the couple and the way we layer the the, uh, the restaurant and the food scene into the structure of this and the story itself that they become they became more and more involved in in the restaurant as the script evolved and the very idea of food and relationship and how that is sort of a theme through the movie all something that evolved through the different if through the many different scripts. And then I think we're both very classic trained, me and Tobias. I mean, we, I come, I came from a lot of crime stories that has a very clear structure and you know exactly, you know, there's many ways of doing a bad crime story and it's very difficult to do a good one, but we know that we all know the basic structure of it and, you know, how the linear plot should push different elements and when you plan your B plot and stuff like that. I wanted to use some of those sort of thriller crime elements in something that was something completely different, which is just an emotional story about a man and a wife. So we wanted to take some of these elements and, and put into a relationship story. I loved all of the elements of this movie, but just wondering if you're passionate about editing as well, because I, I just thought the way the story was was edited was fantastic because you can I can actually watch this movie again and pick up a, a completely different theme or different layer. And that's what deep films should be about. Is editing a big part of who you are as an artist as well? I, I would definitely say, I mean, in, in the sense, I like to shoot a lot of, I, I like, I have two elements when I when I shoot. I wanted to make have a very interesting look. I want to have the, the placement of the camera and the colors in the scene to to do something visually interesting. And at the same time, I'm very keen on having the actors be naturalistic and and great performers, and not be staged and not be theatrical. So I have a style that you know pulls it in one direction, and I have an interest in 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 character and acting and. Uh, storytelling that puts in a, in a different direction that balance of that is all you know fine-tuned in editing 
because the material can do so many different things. For this movie, my wife edited it, so we were very close, in very close talk about that whole process. And it actually, I don't, I don't think I had had a movie where we edited it much. I think we we worked together on this for six months. So that was quite long editing period. I mean, some people some people edited for longer, but I usually edit quite quickly. It was a very long process, which obviously had a lot of these discussions about structure, about layering, about pushing the narrative and about the theatrical, the stylistic element of it, structure of it. This, you know, uh, it has chapters in it, all these kind of elements. And, and then underneath it all, it's a quite, you know, it's a very banal, basic story about a man and a wife. Yeah, there's also a, a story about dreams. And wondering when you were a young filmmaker, did you believe, you know, regarding your Michelin star, did you believe that you wanted to make the most impactful film ever? And as the years progressed, when did you come to the realization that in life, you can't really, it might be pretty impossible to have 100% become the great artist as well as have a structured yeah. family life? I had, you know, Quite early in my career, I had great success and failure at the same time. So uh, my my debut movie came to Cannes, which was for me the only. I, I I'm not an Oscar guy, I'm a Cannes guy. You know, this is the world championship of of movie making. It's it takes place in France. And with my first movie, I came there. I won a prize, so that was absolutely perfect. But that was also quite. Uh, it also destroyed in the sense that I had accomplished some very important thing I wanted to accomplish much too early. After that, I, I've never really, I, I tried to redefine me in the sense of that kind of success. I, I never, after that, I never went to any premieres or award shows. I, I try to leave that behind because I, the success is something different. The success is in making the movies is basically what I've found out that I'm making movies. And uh, that's why if you look at how many movies I make, I made a lot more, I make a lot more movies than other directors in Denmark. Because that's a success for me of being in the process of doing this. I've tried to leave that the success in the exterior world that a pro, that an artistic product can give you awards, money, you know, fame and acclaim, difficult as, as it might be, and I still need a living. It's the work that I appreciate, and I, I feel successful if I'm allowed to do that kind of to do the work. I'm going to ask you a question that'll probably take an hour to answer and I apologize, but I watch a lot of cinema and I tell people even with all this great technology and the advent of so many so many cameras and editing technique, I go back to Fritz Lang's M for just visual and storytelling <laughs> inspiration. And for you with Carl Dreyer, can you just tell our listeners and viewers why sometimes learning from these masters from maybe 60, 70 years ago can still can be a real great creative fountain for even today's technology. What is it about their work? Well, I, think that the, yeah. I think that the main point you'd have to really, that movies is obviously about technique and it's about storytelling and there's a pacing that in modern days we might not be able to find in the old movies, but movies are also about slices of life. They are a way of looking at life and they're basically a way of appreciating how to live. They are all trying to gain access of what is it to be human. Different genres of different ways of looking at human existence. These old guys were very profound thinkers, but in visual terms of being directors. So they, they give us slices of life through their cinema. So there's just great knowledge of how the use of lightning 
and the story and the elements they have. And a, a guy like Drya, he had sort of a, a monumental way of looking at life and looking at the fragile existence of humanity and a way of misangsen and the way he pulled down everything artificial and everything un, unneeded to create these very clean images about this, about human existence and the fragile, fragile of life and stuff like that. So he's He's a very, I don't, he's not an inspiration in what I do now. I do something completely different, but inspirational in, in gaining knowledge about cinema and life. He's, he's an absolutist. So he's very, he's something that he's, he's very close to my heart, Dreyer. And obviously Lars von Trier, who proclaims himself to be in the heritage tradition of, uh, but he himself is very different. But these kind of directors, you know, are just very interesting. Interesting, Yeah. No, I, I definitely think, and I think I, I've also been teaching in film school, and I think one of the things that was a little discouraging in going there was that some reasons film students' knowledge of history starts when, you know, in the 80s or with the, the arrival of, of uh, Steven Spielberg. He's a great director, but he is standing on the shoulders on a long and very artful tradition of uh, masters before him. And I think there's, there's great knowledge to be gained to going back to the old grand masters of cinema and see what they did. And some of them, even by today's standards of that, I always, when I have students or when I talk to people, Go back and look at an old Billy Wilder movie. He he's more cutthroat. He's a very better storyteller, and he doesn't miss one beat. Where you would, I mean, used three punches, he uses one. Uh, there are some of the Billy Wilders. I mean, they are racial sharp in how he's a story that I I don't know anybody, maybe besides David Fincher today, that could do the same kind of storytelling. And and as we're leaving, just thirty seconds. If if just a cinephile comes up to you and asks, can that they want to actually see a drier film or a wilder film? Can, which two films would you point them just to start their journey with these respective filmmakers? Uh, Billy Wilder, I would see Sunset Boulevard, and uh, Drier, you should see Oval. Uh, in, in, in I don't know what it's called in English, but it's called Oval. The word I would translate, but not sure. Or Gatul. Gatul from Drier is an amazing, amazing, wonderful movie. It's so strange that I can guarantee you, you have never seen anything like it and never will. Great. Thank you so much for your time. And I really loved your film as well. Thank you.